We thank you, Lord, that you know us completely. And yet, you love us. We pray that you would enable us to measure ourselves and other people through your measure, through your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Luke chapter 19 is, a, is an interesting one. We have the story of Zacchaeus, and then we have that parable of the talents that we maybe know so well that seems a little bit unfair, to be honest. And then we have the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we're going to be hearing about in a few weeks on Palm Sunday, maybe. Um, and then we have the rest of today's story. Jesus has come towards Jerusalem on the donkey, and at some point he, he must get off, and he stops, and he cries. He says some terrible things about Jerusalem. He makes a prophecy about all of the stones of Jerusalem being made into rubble. And many people think he's foreseeing the, um, the sack of Jerusalem in just a few years after he was speaking. This city that seems impregnable at the, at the moment will be completely destroyed. And it must have been strange for all of those people who were shouting and singing hallelujah. For the first thing that Jesus did was to get off his donkey and start crying. I wonder what they thought. But many of them must have continued following him. And they followed him to the temple, which is the first place he went to. We don't know how many people were with him. But boy, they got a show, didn't they? Because what happens next is Jesus starts knocking over the tables of the people in the court of Gentiles who were selling creatures to be, um, to be sacrificed, who were exchanging money from all over the world to temple currency so these sacrificial animals could be bought. They were doing a job of work. They weren't actually doing anything wrong as far as the authorities went. They were making a living. This must have been a strange and quite scary thing to witness. And I'm sure a lot of people thought, right, okay, he definitely is a crazy man. We thought he was. But he is crazy. This is what crazy people do. And there must have been hundreds of people there as well. Jesus, one person, managed to do quite a lot of damage, potentially. Knocking over tables, getting rid of setting doves free, goats all over the place, sheep, goodness knows what. It must have been a right mess. But nobody stops him. And this really reminded me of the, that time in, um, when Jesus had, had actually said his mission statement in the synagogue and people took him out to that cliff and were going to throw him off and he just walked through the crowd. When he had to, Jesus was, was a, a real ninja. He was, he was good at walking through a crowd and getting what needed to be done, done. Because this was not normal behavior for Jesus. 
This was chosen. This was calculated behavior. This was in the temple, the place of power. This was in Passover. Such an important time, surrounded by people. Jesus knew that something was going to happen. We don't know if Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, but he definitely knew that this was the time. And in the middle of his, his crazy rampage, he stops and he says, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And I find that very interesting. My house is a house of prayer. Not my house will be or should be. My house is a house of prayer. Like I said, those, those people who were exchanging money those people who were selling sacrificial animals weren't doing anything that they, they weren't contravening the law. They were doing what they had been told. But Jesus says, this is wrong. This is wrong. You're making the course of Gentiles, this place that is meant to be a place of prayer for the nations, into a bazaar, just like everything that's outside the temple walls. So as, as Danny mentioned, we're, we're continuing with our series on, um, on the book that Justin Welby wrote called Dethroning Mammon. And mammon, that word, can mean many things, but it can mean anything that gets in the way of God in our lives. It can mean materialism. Because the things that we measure can control us. I wonder how we measure our lives, how good and successful they are. Well, the people in Jesus' day measured the success of the temple in very specific ways. They measured the success of the temple in how many people were in the temple. There would have been thousands of people in the temple in that week. It would have been absolute bedlam. People from all over the world. People who um, made the pilgrimage to the temple once or twice or maybe three times every year because that is where the worship of the Jewish people was centered. And it's not a bad thing to count the success of your temple or even your church by the amount of people who are in the seats or milling around. In fact, many of you may remember, and I know Maura remembers, that every year we have to stand up and be counted here. And we need to have a measure of how many people come to each of our services. We need to be able to count something, to measure something. But does this control us? Is this how we know that we have a successful church here at St. Stephen's, that all the seats are full? Maybe that's part of it. Maybe. Because successful seats mean followers of God or people who are searching after truth. But Jesus says, wherever two or three people are gathered, there he is. Wherever two or three people are gathered, there is church. Who knows which is more successful? But we need something to measure and count. Let's just be sure that the number of people is not the thing that actually controls us. 
And also the people in Jesus' day measured the success of the temple by what was happening in the temple. And in the temple, a lot was happening. Sacrifices every day, especially during feast times like Passover. I'm sure it smelt and it sounded absolutely awful. I can't imagine. Um, But it was a very, very busy place. People doing things all the time, people worshipping God, hundreds of people employed as as, um, priests, hundreds of people exchanging money in the course of Gentiles. It was very busy. It feels really good when we have a lot of things going on, doesn't it? Just last week, I was talking to a lady who... um, was asking how many things we do at, what do we do at St. Stephen's? And she was really amazed to hear how many things are happening during the week, on Sundays. She was incredulous. She said, this must be a very, very successful church. Well, yes, okay, it's wonderful. Wonderful that we have a lot of things happening. It is. But is that how we measure success? How busy we are? Danny did mention last week that um, often the first thing you ask people is, when you first meet them, a little bit of small talk is, what do you do? And that's how we measure how important people are. But is that really it? And we have in our church some wonderful targets of things that we're aiming for because we need to measure something. We need to know that we're actually... Um, being successful as a church. We have wonderful targets. We have targets of creating a welcoming and open environment, making, training new pastoral assistants, um, having regular evangelism courses, having regular connect courses, having at least 55% of our regular church attendees in, in a small group. All of these things are good But is this success? What we do is not the only way of measuring success. It's who we are. But more of that a little bit later. And the third thing about the temple, the third way that they measured how successful the temple was, was how awesome their buildings were. And um, quite close to the bone for some of us, maybe, at the moment. But I, re- I read recently that some, a lot of the temple was actually gold-plated. So on a sunny day, that would have knocked your eyes out. It's just as well there weren't people driving around in cars, because that, that would have been dangerous. It would have been absolutely beautiful. It covered acres of land. Um, the, the Romans had helped them rebuild it, and it was, it was even better than it was in the days of Nehemiah. It was a wonderful monument to and reminder of God's greatness and awesome majesty. Now, having a building that's fit for purpose and beautiful is very important, and it's, it is one of our targets as a church here at St. Stephen's. And it's, it is... Very important that people look at our building and they think, wow, that's great, I'd like to go there. But is it the most important thing to have 
a building that is exactly what we want. It's very possible for people to get so tied up in dealing with the building and making a beautiful building that they forget why on earth they're doing that in the first place. Which is why, one of the reasons why we have, we've decided as, um, as a team, as a group, as a PCC, that, that our building plans, we need to sit and think about them a little bit more and think about how we do this properly. Because the building itself is not a measure of success. We all know that the church is the people inside the building. So how do we know how to measure those people, those individuals inside the church building? Let's look at how success was measured in one person in our story, that, the story that I read earlier. So Zacchaeus, he was a successful man. Nobody liked him, but he was very successful. He was wealthy. He'd stolen a lot of money from people. He probably had better clothes than everybody. He probably had a better house than most people around. He was comfortable, very comfortable. His family were well cared for. It's very easy to look at other people who have more things than us and judge them to be more successful than us. It's very easy to believe that having more money will make us more happy. But then we look at things like, do you remember Black Friday? A few years ago, they, this, this idea that there's a one particular shopping day just before Christmas and it's super, super discounted and people go on, on literal stampedes to get TVs that they don't really need. And people were injured here in this country, even in England. Things can become so important, trappings of wealth. Um, I recently read an article about a guy, who, an, a property developer, who, who is working in California at the moment, who's working on a $250 million mansion. It's kind of hideous. But he, he says, well, why shouldn't your home be as nice as your yacht or your airplane? <laughs> and why not? Why shouldn't it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so that's what success is. Um, but this guy even has been, there's somebody else who's building a half a billion dollar house just down the road. Always somebody who is going to beat you. Half a billion dollars. It maybe is gold-plated like the temple, who knows? The son of man had nowhere to lay his head. And he reminded us, look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil or spin and they are fine. So maybe wealth is not a great way to judge the people around us, to measure people. But it's certainly, wealth is certainly something that can control us. And maybe status is something that controls us as well. Zacchaeus had great status. Tax collectors were safe from the state in those days. They were agents of the state. They would have been protected. Like I said before, that question, what do you do? I've also noticed, you know, at the back of a book or any, something, and they get, they get people to write um, a review of a book. 
always underneath the person's name is what they do. So by knowing what they do, we can know whether we listen to their judgment or not. Because would I be listening to the judgment of my cleaner or the Archbishop of Canterbury? Which person is more important? Which person has more status? Do you know that volunteers basically run this country? Especially now, as a lot of um, charities and um, social services are being cut, lots of volunteers are running important things in this country. Billions and billions of pounds worth of work is being done by people who essentially don't have a lot of status because they're volunteers. They're not paid. Our church runs on volunteers. We need volunteers, and actually voluntary work is a, a brilliant way of being part of any group. Now, I don't really know this, but I, I'm guessing the disciples weren't paid by Jesus. I mean, he didn't, I, we don't know exactly how much money he had, but I think they were volunteers. Jesus just asked them to come and follow him, and they did. And Jesus literally ran from earthly status. When people wanted to crown him king, he ran away across the lake. He knew that that was not the way people were going to measure him. Because if they did measure him because of status, that would have controlled him. And what about beauty, the third way that we sometimes judge people? We don't know much about Zacchaeus' beauty. We don't know anything about his looks. But look at how much beauty is important around us. Britain's diet industry is worth over £2 billion a year. That's just under the amount that um, the NHS spends on emergency medicine. £2 billion worth of books, magazines, weird supplementary foods, diets, things telling people that they are not quite good enough. That is worth two billion pounds. We're told we need to look perfect, and that's not just the men, not just the women. It's men now as well. <laughs> that was a slip. <laughs> this is how we're judged. We're judged in the first seven seconds that somebody meets us, and maybe even quicker. But Jesus saw to the heart of people, and he loved them. And he measured them in a completely different way. How does Jesus measure success? How can we see that in these passages? Well, I suggest one thing from Zacchaeus' story and one thing from the story of the cleansing of the temple. Jesus measured Zacchaeus' success by his repentance and his changed life. Zacchaeus, we, we don't even know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus knew that he had to change his life, and he did. As soon as Jesus came to his house, as soon as Jesus got him down off that tree, he knew that everything had to change. And like a lot of things in the Gospels, we don't actually know what happened to Zacchaeus ne next. And it's surely somebody's written a novel about it. It would be a good story. But we do see somebody that Jesus knew who changed over and over in Peter. Man, he made a lot of mistakes. And Jesus forgave him again and again. And he forgives us as well. He sees to the heart of who we are. He does 
require, demand repentance. But that doesn't mean that we need to wear sackcloth and ashes and go, woe is me. That means a changed life. That means a life spent searching after God. And my last point is how we do that. Because Jesus says, my house is a house of prayer. And the way we search after God is through relationship, like Danny said. This is not a a religion of rules. It's a religion of relationship. And the way we do that is through prayer. True worship is based on prayer, on a life of prayer, not just Sunday, all the time. Prayer is a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit right now. And I have to admit, I always feel two-faced when I talk about prayer, when I preach about prayer, because it's hard. A lot of the time I feel like not doing it. But we are commanded to do this. And we're given so many different ways of doing it as well. It's a really good study to go through the Gospels and look at all the different ways that Jesus prayed. He prayed through silence. He prayed through a lot of words. He prayed through the Lord's Prayer that he gave his disciples. And Lent is a really great time to find a new way of praying or to continue with ways of praying that we know work for us. And we've got lots going on here, and I'm falling into the trap, aren't I, of of measuring our success by what we're doing. But we are doing a lot of prayer here at St. Stephen's, centering prayer on Monday morning, Monday night reflections during Lent, Facebook Lent practices, Tuesday morning prayer, Wednesday reflections at St. Bart's, sorry, that's not St. Stephen's, and Thursday communion. Friday, we have a midday prayer here. There are lots and lots of ways to pray, but the thing is that we need to do it. And it doesn't really matter how you do it. A praying church is a successful church. A church that repents and changes its life is a successful church. All the other ways of measuring success are good, but we can see in our passages that repentance and prayer are the measures that Jesus requires. Let's pray that we become more able to measure with Jesus' measures when we look at our church and when we look at ourselves and when we look at other people. Amen.